following sermon was delivered at Antioch Presbyterian Church, a mission work of Calvary Presbytery of the Presbyterian Church in America located in Woodruff, South Carolina. For more information about Antioch Presbyterian Church, please visit AntiochPCA.com or contact us at info at AntiochPCA.com. May the Lord bless you as you receive gracious instruction from His Word. Old wooden roller coasters, or what we might call across the pond, helter-skelters for our British friends, are disappearing fast out of amusement parks in our day. But if you've ever been on one of them, then you likely know what it feels like to be shaken so much as to feel like you're going to fall out of the roller coaster car. You're going to be thrown off the tracks into the air. You know what it's like to be shaken out of your place. Newer metal roller coasters, which are also a lot of fun, they're much smoother rides. They have all kinds of straps and buckles and, and bars and restraints and harnesses and things to keep you safe, secure, and unshaken. In fact, you might even fall asleep on the ride. That's how smooth they are if you close your eyes. Um, but nonetheless, they're still thrilling. They don't induce anxiety like a wooden roller coaster sometimes does. And the message of our psalm this morning, it, it gives us a picture of the Christian life that is demanding, perhaps even thrilling, like a roller coaster ride, but it's the very opposite of anxious. It's not one of those crazy wooden roller coasters. It's more like a metal one, if we might say so. Indeed, as we come to the Lord's table to commune with God in, in the supper this morning through Jesus Christ, those of us who have been admitted to the table, we should be feeling anticipation without anxiety, hope without any hesitation in coming to the table in Christ's name, through faith in him. So toward that end, I'll seek to show you from Psalm 15 this morning in this communion message as I break my Matthew series, that God graciously makes us holy as we commune with him. This is what we can hope for. This is what we should be expecting, even anticipating as we observe the sacrament together, that in the ministry of the word and sacrament rightly administered according to God's word and in the power of his spirit, God is working a great and gracious spiritual change in us. Indeed, God graciously makes us holy as we commune with him. And Psalm 15 gives us a picture of that. So we'll consider the psalm under three headings. First, the question of divine communion. And we'll look at what the psalmist is really asking in verse 1. And then the quality of our holiness in verses 2 through the first half of verse 5. And the promise of God's grace there in the second half of verse 5. The promise of of God's grace. So the question of divine communion in verse 1, the quality of our holiness, particularly as God's people who dwell with him and abide with him in verses 2 through 4a, and then the promise of God's grace in the second half, or I should say 5a, and then the promise of God's grace in the second half of verse 5. So first, the question of divine communion. The psalm opens, a psalm of David. We take this as meaning one that David has written. O Lord, who may abide in your tent, who may dwell on your holy hill? And when we read this question, and commentators have been apt to do this over the ages, we might think that he's setting us up 
really to enter into God's presence. He's asking, who is worthy to come into God's presence? And so the answer is, well, of course, nobody is. We're totally dependent on God's grace. But look back at the question. He doesn't say, who may enter into your tent? Or who might have access to your holy hill? Instead, he says, O Lord, who may abide in your tent? Who may dwell or sojourn in your holy hill? He's asking a question about people who've already been granted free access to God in his presence. And so this is not an entrance liturgy. Rather, it's more to the point of what we're doing this morning, something of a liturgy of the upper room. It's, he's asking a question and then answering it with a presentation of what it means to be dwelling with God. You've already been brought in, O Christian. You've already been granted access. Now who can stand in his presence? Who can remain there? What does that look like to have established, secured communion with God even over time and in your life? And so this psalm then, and this is crucial for understanding what happens in the rest of the psalm, what's being described for us. It's about life with God, not life unto uh, favor with God. It's about life with him. It is the way of life. In that sense, it is the way of salvation, what God is doing in our lives, leading to glory. But it's not a scheme for works-based salvation. It's a common and an easy error to make when you approach this psalm and others like it, that we're thinking, oh, the God of the Old Testament, the God of the Psalms, he demanded moral perfection, and if you didn't have that, he would have nothing to do with you. Oh, contraire, on the contrary, the God of grace is very present in the Old Testament and at work in the lives of his people and in his church, even as he is in the New Testament. And what he's presenting to us is not so much a do this and be saved, but rather you have been saved and thus your life looks like this. And that way it mirrors even the Ten Commandments or the life of Abraham as we'll see. And so this psalm assumes entrance into God's presence and then gives a description of what it means to abide in that presence, to stand in that presence, to dwell with God. With so much of the psalm then taken up with a picture of personal holiness in verses 2 through 5a, I don't want you to miss this grace opening. And didn't King David, didn't he know what it was like to be welcomed into God's presence undeserved? In fact, his response to being made king is, oh God, who am I? I'm just a shepherd boy. I'm not worthy of this great honor. And before the temple was erected on God's holy hill, David knew well the more intimate setting of the tent of meeting where God dwelled with his people, even in the Exodus, under Moses' leadership and mediation. And so David uses this picture of intimate relation with God, of meeting with him in the tent of meeting, of even dwelling with God on his holy hill, picturing that great state that Adam and Eve were created to live in, in the Garden of Eden, perhaps on on a holy garden mountain or mountain garden. And David uses this to characterize for us and for all those who've encountered this psalm and even sung it as we have, this picture of what it means to dwell with God of meeting with him in a tent pitched even as a mountain sanctuary. 
The Christian life, it's full of mountaintop experiences which are very exciting, where we feel very close to God, but perhaps our day-to-day we forget that indeed we live coram Deo before God each and every day, no matter what the, the subjective feeling, what, what we sense in our day-to-day. We might feel like we're far away from him. Indeed, he, he withdraws the felt presence, as it were, but he's ever and always there. And we're ever and always before him. And that's the picture then, the setting that this psalm gives us in verse 1 as it asks this question of what it is to dwell with God, what it is to commune with him, to live before him in the light of his grace. Now then, what shall we do? We've asked that opening question. So we press on into the body of the psalm then to consider under our second heading the quality of our holiness. The quality of our holiness in verses 2 through 5a. There are two things I want to make clear to you about what our holiness as Christians is. First, it comes out of or flows out of hearts that have been remade. It's, the quality of our holiness is really set from our regenerate hearts, hearts that are born anew from above, born by the Spirit. We see that especially in, at, at the two outer uh, limits of this section in verse 2 and then in verse 4a. But that's, that's not all. This life then, which has been born again by the Spirit from heaven above, it's a life that's according to God's word. We see that in verses 3 and then 4b and 5a. And so we might say that the Christian life is one that is lived by spirit and by word, by word and by spirit. There's been much confusion in the church when one is divorced from the other. But indeed, you cannot live the Christian life without being born again. You can't simply inherit it from your genetics. The only thing you can inherit is your sin. But rather, you must be born again, and the psalmist makes this point. Look at verses 2 and 4a with me. He speaks of matters of the heart. Who may dwell on God's holy hill? He who walks with integrity and works righteousness and speaks truth in his heart. So what does it mean to walk with integrity and to work righteousness? Well, it starts by speaking truth in your heart before anything even comes out of your mouth or you do anything with your hands. And then in verse 4a, we get this other description, in whose eyes a reprobate is despised. That's a motion of the heart, of the internal life, but who honors those who fear the Lord. Again, these are things that are descriptive of the heart of a true Christian who dwells in God's presence. In verse 2, we're given the heart of integrity. One of single-minded faith in covenant with God, even as Abraham was. In Genesis 17, 1, when God uh, establishes or reiterates, I should say, repeats his covenant with Abraham and introduces then the sign of the covenant, the sign of circumcision, he says, now when Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, this is what he says, I am God Almighty, walk before me and be blameless. Two of the words in this very important statement to Abraham reappear in this very verse. He who walks with integrity and works righteousness or uprightness. Abram, his righteousness came through what? 
through faith in God. God declares him righteousness for his faith, which he had in God, even to go and to walk and to make a journey to the land of Canaan, far away from the land of his fathers, to sojourn as a stranger in the promised land, just as now David is describing what it is to sojourn as a guest receiving hospitality as a stranger within the gates of God. Not stranger as in one with no interest, but one who has received a gracious invitation. So just as Abram had a heart of single-minded faith and covenant with God, so too this quality characterizes our Christian lives day to day, for it comes out of a heart that has been remade and reborn by the Spirit and given this gift of faith. And this heart then is full of wisdom, as is intimated or described for us, I should say, in verse 4, in whose eyes a reprobate is despised, but who honors those who fear the Lord. This heart that God works in the lives of his believers It's one that is full of wisdom, that can judge right from wrong. And now, trust me, these are the kinds of men that we're going to be looking for at this church as we consider officers, as we consider elders and deacons, men with discerning eyes, with understanding hearts, men who are full of wisdom and the grace of God, that know when it would be right to help somebody in need and when it would be a foolish use of kingdom resources who know what a credible or believable true profession of faith is versus a false profession or a hypocritical uh, confession of Christ or self-interested one. But you might think, this verse is so harsh. We're told to love our enemies, not to despise anyone. And yes, that's true. But the verse is not harsh. It's merely describing what the word puts elsewhere as the picture of a righteous man. We all make judgments We all have to come to conclusions about things, even about people. And as unpleasant as that might seem, it's one that's commanded of us. Ephesians 5 verse 11 says, Do not participate in the unfruitful deeds of darkness, but instead even then expose them to the light, that they might be burned up. In Isaiah 5 verse 20, God pronounces a curse on those, not only who are evil, but who fail to judge rightly about evil. He says, Woe to those who call evil good and good evil who substitute darkness for light and light for darkness, who substitute bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. And Christ gives us a picture of this in the Gospel of Matthew, as I've been seeking to show in, uh, in my Matthew series, as he's exposing the hypocrisy and the evil of the Pharisees and their scribes. He's bringing to light their insincerity. He's bringing to light their lack of integrity. They would have held up Psalm 15 and said, this is us. And Jesus is saying, no, you're missing the mark completely, Pharisees and scribes. You have no integrity of heart. You don't judge rightly. You judge merely appearances and not the truth of the matter, particularly in their own lives, much less in the lives of others. And so the man who's been born again, he has integrity, single-minded faith, and great wisdom to judge rightly, even according to God's word. But then he also lives according to God's word. He takes God's word not only as a reminder of the impossibly high standard of moral perfection that God requires, and thus our need for grace, and that is true, but then he 
comes back to the word of God after having received God's grace and says, how shall I live by this word? Look at verses 3 and then 4b and 5a. He says, he does not slander with his tongue, nor does evil to his neighbor, nor takes up a reproach against his friend. He swears to his own hurt and does not change. He does not put out his money at interest, nor does he take a bribe against the innocent. And so what God is, is uh, or what David is describing here, what, what the Spirit is inspiring David to describe for us in the life of a Christian as one who abides in God's presence, is that the external life, it is matched up with to the Word of God. It is matched up with the Word of God, even in your conduct. And he picks a few different examples that are particularly close to the heart of a Christian. Consider, he begins with speech, and speech about our neighbors. He then proceeds to speak about the vows and oaths and commitments that a man takes in his life that, even after taking them to fulfill them, would do him hurt. And yet, does he abandon them? No. He sticks close to those commitments which he makes. And then he completes it by talking about money. What does Jesus say about money? Where your treasure is, your heart will be also. So he uses these examples that really cut right to the heart. How do you live in society with fellow man? How do you speak about others? What do you do with your money? Do you keep your commitments, he asks. Considering the external life, he considers those actions that flow immediately from the heart. He's very direct in speaking about speech, self-interest, commitments, and money. And so we might take up these questions or these standards, and we ask ourselves in self-examination, what do we love? How do we love to spend our time? Do we relish speaking evil of others? Do we enjoy hearing an evil report about somebody? Oh, did you hear about what so-and-so did? No, I didn't. Tell me more. Does that characterize you? This is a challenge to each of us and all of us, isn't it? We like to beat down others to make ourselves feel good, but that's not what the righteous man does. The man who lives ever in God's presence seeks for the good of his neighbor. He seeks for good reports. He wants to believe the best about people, even as he's wisely judging the, uh, the intents of men as he considers their deeds and their works and how they conduct their affairs, how they live their lives. And we might also ask, how do you spend your time? Do you spend your time digging around for evil reports or digging, digging around for news. It's so easy to open up Facebook or Twitter or, or the, the newspaper or in the grocery line with the tabloid magazines and to get all manner of juicy gossip. You go looking for it. When you see it, you push it aside and say, no, I have, I have better things to put before my eyes. I challenge you this week, each and every day, um, Go to God's word, set before your mind something that occupies you with a nobler thought than anything you might see in social media or the tabloid magazines or even the political section of the newspaper. Think on the excellencies of God. Think of his promise to work holiness and righteousness in his people. Even meditate on Psalm 15. It's just five verses. And these five verses contain in them greater treasures of wisdom and holiness and goodness than all the magazines and newspapers and social media feeds of the world. And then 
Do you keep your commitments even to your own hurt? I was talking with a friend uh, this uh, past couple weeks who prospectively is going to have uh, his student loans forgiven, and he's a man of strong conviction. And he even said to me, he said, this is so wrong, and this is his opinion. I wish I could pay this back somehow, but what can I do? If they expunge them, where would I even send my money? Now, I'm not saying you have to have that same desire, but you have to admire the guy's mettle to live by his convictions. He wishes to keep his word even to his own hurt. So if you've ever made a commitment to somebody and you consider after you get to the point where you have to pay them back, man, this is going to cost me a lot, a lot of time, a lot of money, a lot of mental energy. Do you follow through with your commitment? Or do you try to weasel your way out of things? Well, the man who dwells before the face of God with a keen awareness of God's presence and a keen conviction that he is to live honorably before his God who's given him so much, will swear even to his own hurt, and he will not change. It's described for us in Proverbs chapter 6, where the author of Proverbs advises his son. He says, my son, if you have become surety for your neighbor, that is, if you owe something to your neighbor, have given a pledge for a stranger, if you have been snared with the words of your mouth, even if you've taken an, an oath or a vow or made a promise, that is really to your disadvantage, have been caught with the words of your mouth, do this then, my son, and deliver yourself. Since you have come into the hand of your neighbor, don't run away, don't try to weasel your way out of it. Rather, go humble yourself and importune your neighbor. That is, seek his relief. Ask him for relief directly. Give no sleep to your eyes, nor slumber to your eyelids. Deliver yourself like a gazelle from the hunter's hand and like a bird from the hand of the fowler. But in that advice is even the chance that your neighbor will say, no, you owe me this and I need it. But perhaps he'll rearrange the terms of repayment. Perhaps he'll be merciful. And that's the advice that's given. Now, this doesn't mean that you must keep a rash vow. In fact, our confession of faith is very helpful on this point. If you make a rash vow like that of Jephthah the judge vowing to sacrifice the first thing that runs out of his house after having a great victory, and then he gets home and his daughter runs out first, and he goes and he sacrifices his daughter on an altar of worship. No, don't follow Jephthah's example. That rash vow was utterly foolish, and to fulfill it would be sinful. But if you make a lawful vow or promise, the psalmist tells us to live before God is to keep your promise. I refer you, if you wish to read about Jephthah and his foolishness, go to Judges 11. So at this point, you might think, how can I maintain such holiness and remain in God's presence? How is this possible? The quality of our holiness, it indeed is noble and exalted. It's a heavenly holiness, and it's, it's exceedingly difficult. We cannot keep it on our own power, can we? And so we return then to what God does. This time, in the second half of verse 5, we consider the promise of God's grace. The promise of God's grace. He who does these things will never be shaken. In this verse, much like in the first verse, there's something assumed and then there's something stated. There's a judgment assumed, but there's great grace that's promised to us. See, the judgment that's assumed is that you, it is possible to be shaken out of God's presence, as it were, to be shaken out of visible communion with him, even membership in his covenant community. 
And boys and girls, each of you by your birth, having been born to Christian parents, you have been brought into, without any choice of your own, into uh, the visible communion or community of God's covenant of grace. You do stand in God's presence even as little ones. Through perhaps the faith of your parents, but yet you stand nonetheless. And so I warn you, there is judgment coming where God will, in fact, Jesus Christ will return to judge the living and the dead, to separate the sheep from the goats, the rotten fish from the good fish, the chaff from the wheat. And do you know how you, sh- how you separate chaff from wheat? You shake the wheat until the chaff falls out and blows away. Perhaps that's the picture David has in mind here in this verse. God is just. He will not tolerate evil in his presence. He will, in fact, shake out the chaff from the wheat. And so if you're here this morning and you're trusting in your parents' faith or righteousness, if you're trusting in your own performance and what it is you do as a Christian to somehow earn God's favor, if you're trusting in one of these things, ask yourself, do you measure up, do your parents measure up at home to the standards set in Psalm 15? And what you'll find is that none of us measure up to that standard. Each of us fall far short. And I warn you again, judgment is coming. The chaff shall be sorted out from the wheat and shaken away. But God promises to he who is of upright heart, to he who has been born again after a living hope, who's been given faith, he says, you will never be shaken. So just as I've warned you of coming judgment, I want to remind you of God's grace, that what God commands, he gives. He commands moral perfection indeed. But what has he given? He's given his son, he who is morally perfect, who is indefectible, that is, cannot sin or never sinned, impeccable, cannot sin, to use the proper term. He has given his son who shares in his nature, who is God himself, who set aside his glory, took to himself a human nature that we might then be carried to heaven with him. And if you trust in his righteousness, in his moral perfection, in his enduring and everlasting uprightness in the presence of his father, then you too shall be saved. And you too shall stand in his presence. And he commands of all those who then cast themselves upon Jesus Christ, who answer his summons and his invitation, even his command to come to the Father through him, he then gives to them holiness. He gives holiness to his redeemed people, not a holiness that justifies them in a legal sense, for that work is done in Jesus Christ but holiness that upholds them in his presence such that they will never be consumed. They will not be shaken away. Psalm 46 even puts it this way uh, for his people as a whole. God is in the midst of her. She will not be moved, will not be shaken out. And those who trust in the Lord are as Mount Zion, which cannot be moved but abides forever, as the psalmist tells us in 125. He indeed commands holiness from his redeemed people. And not only has he sent his son to perform that righteousness on our behalf, but he sends his spirit then 
to work that holiness in us day by day, time by time. And it's the mark of a true Christian who does resemble in ever greater and increasing measure the picture of the righteous man given to us in Psalm 15. So I spoke of roller coaster rides and the such this morning and perhaps another mundane example and one that's a bit more familiar to us is the car ride that we take most of us each and every day. You get into your car and what is the first thing you're supposed to do? Maybe adjust your mirrors, but you put on a seatbelt to secure you, to fasten you into the car so that in case you do get into an accident or you have to brake very quickly at a, at a red light or a stop sign or an intersection, you're held back. You're not shaken out of your seat. I'll never forget this. I was driving through East Lansdowne, Pennsylvania, right by where I grew up in Upper Darby, outside of Philadelphia. There's a lot of stop signs. And I come up to an intersection and I ease to a stop and I saw this guy in a minivan. He had his teenage daughter in the front seat. I'm assuming it was his daughter. And uh, he was going a bit fast. I think he didn't notice there was a stop sign and he suddenly braked and she didn't have her seatbelt on and she flew up and hit the windshield. And her face was, was uh, she was, had been turning to her right and I was on the right of their car and I saw her face and I've never seen such terror in somebody's face. Now, she was okay. She didn't go through the windshield, but she was terrified because she had been shaken, worked loose out of her seat. Well, indeed, Psalm 15 gives us a picture, perhaps, of putting on this seatbelt. What it looks like to trust in the Lord Jesus not only as Savior, but also as Lord of life. What it means to go to God's Word for help in our day-to-day -day living, in, in, in the reformation of our morals, just as our hearts have been reborn. And what this psalm shows us, as I've said earlier, is God graciously makes us holy then as we commune with Him. He works His holiness in us. He does so by word and sacrament asking the question of how then do we live in God's presence, showing us the picture of the quality of our holiness and giving unto us at the very end a promise of his grace. So what? Well, has something shaken you up this past week in your life, maybe this past month, this season, this year, and as you come to the table, you have anxiety, perhaps a great disappointment at work or in one of your interactions, a tragedy in your family, a crisis, in your health, all of these things I've been talking to people about, not only in our congregation, but even uh, in other areas, at the seminary, and, and just in my family itself, as I speak with extended family members. So I know each of us face these things and know people that are. Perhaps even a happy success or a great achievement in your life has, has kind of shaken your steady walk with the Lord. You've grown up got a little bit relaxed as you've been distracted from the grace, the sustaining grace of God, and, and your walk, which you once enjoyed, is no longer there. And as the table is spread before you for the supper, do you, O oh faithful Christian, one who has been welcomed to the table, do you feel uncertain and anxious, asking, am I worthy to take this bread, to drink this cup, to commune with God? Or are you hesitant to approach him in prayer or in worship? Am I worthy to approach even the throne of grace? 
Are you anxious at all, even as you wake up and you think about the day ahead and you have to go about your daily routine and you know about the high calling of the Christian believer to be a representative uh, to your neighbors and to your family and you think, how in the world am I going to do this? Or how am I going to let God down today? What kind of judgment am I going to call down upon myself today? I, we think these thoughts, don't we? They flash across our minds as we weigh out the high calling of the Christian life and the dangers that present themselves to us. Well, as you consider the picture of holiness in Psalm 15, if it terrorizes your conscience, if it fills you with fear and dread at the very prospect of even living because you do not know how you could stand in God's presence, as you think, I could never be like that, how could I be good enough to stand before the face of God? Well, dear believer, when you doubt your own righteousness, when you doubt your own ability, and consider this, we cannot achieve moral perfection in this life. That is true. But the one who lives a life of repentance and faith and service to God is promised you will never be shaken. That faith which God has worked into you, he will produce fruit from it that flows out of you out of a renewed heart. Not because the quality of your holiness somehow makes you worthy, but because Christ, the worthy one, has given himself that we might become God's workmanship in him. So the table before us then this morning, it's a picture of Christ's sacrifice for us. For at this table, we're strengthened for the life of holiness to which God then calls us as we leave from this place. So don't withdraw from God. Don't let anxiety obstruct the way to his throne. Rather, draw unto him. Come and be fed and well-nourished. Come to him for grace, for strength to stand in time of need. Come to him, even for Christ himself. Let's pray. Thank you for listening to this sermon from Antioch Presbyterian Church. We are located in the historic Cashville community of Woodruff, South Carolina, near the intersection of South Carolina Highways 101 and 417. For more information about Antioch Presbyterian Church, please visit AntiochPCA.com.